Father, it is good to be here this morning in your house. And with your family, Lord. It's good to take this time to take a knee in worship and to bow and just to love you, Father. And while we sing, the Lord, the winter has passed. Even now, the snow is falling outside of the windows. But how perfect. Because this is how you've called us to live, Lord. With that kind of expectation. To live with one foot in heaven and one foot on the earth. And I pray, Father, for your encouragement. And this morning, Lord, would you show us, as much as you show us of heaven, and we've talked recently, Lord, about revelation. Would you just show us now how to live until you come. And until you call us out. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, you can open up your Bibles one more time to 2 Corinthians, if you will. 2 Corinthians, chapter 13. One verse this morning. Just one. 2 Corinthians, chapter 13. And I'm going to kind of close out the chapter, but we'll come back and look at one verse, and that verse will be verse 11. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And with that, we have the conclusion of Paul's letters plural, to the church at Corinth. We won't see or read or hear of any other letters written. There may have been, but we don't have them. So this comes to us as the last, and you know it's been a difficult correspondence. It's been a struggle. It's been filled with strife. Not for us. Not for us. The teachings of First and Second Corinthians. The doctrine contained here, the revelations, the implications for life have been abundant Clearly, these are the words of God as spoke through Paul. But the correspondence between Paul and the Corinthians have indicated rifts and ruptures and and disruptions and difficulties in their fellowship and in the fellowship between Paul and this church. So it's not surprising here at the end that Paul calls for peace. He uses the word peace a couple of times here. He admonishes the Corinthians, live in peace. And I read that and I think, oh, that sounds good. Live in peace. We've come through a contentious election season, as you all know. And there are still contentions. And tomorrow, I guess, the electors get to gather. 538, is that right? Electors are going to gather to confirm the, the president, of, the next president of the United States. And there are all those who are calling for the electors to change their minds and to vote opposite that which they were given. And so the contention continues. And I just this morning read an article written by Keith Getty. Keith and, and Kristen Getty, who, who do wonderful worship music in Christ Alone, among other fantastic worship songs that they do. And Keith had a suggestion in this article for people, for our country, what we need to do right now to live in peace. And he said, sing Christmas carols. We need to sing Christmas carols. Because it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or a Republican when you're singing the first Noel. 
You know, it really doesn't matter what your perspective is or your particular bent politically or socially or culturally when you're singing carols. And we love the carols. And religious people or non-religious people alike tend to like carols more than any other kinds of Christmas songs. Oh, Frosty's fine. You know, Rudolph can come and go. But we want the carols because there's something rich and, and encouraging and hopeful that is in them. We all want peace. Now, there's a particular Christmas carol, and you may not have thought of it as a Christmas carol. I, I certainly didn't. Written back in 1955 by Jill Jackson Miller and Cy Miller. It was sung by countless, has been sung by countless elementary school choirs. My elementary school choir sang. It was the first time I learned and, and heard the song. But the meaning behind the song is interesting because Jill Miller herself had been suicidal after the failure of her first marriage and called upon to write a song for the International Children's Choir out of Long Beach, California, she sat down and and began to pen the words early on to what would become this song. And she later wrote that this song came of her own life-saving discovery of the joy of God's peace and unconditional love. The song is, Let There Be Peace on Earth. And let it begin with me. Let there be peace on earth, the peace that was meant to be with God as our Father. Brothers all are we. Let me walk with my brother in perfect harmony. I used to love that song as a kid. And I I read that article just this last week and, and the song came back to me and I was singing it in my head again. Just last year, by the way, Microsoft stirred up not a little controversy. By removing the second verse, skipping it all together in a TV spot, let there be peace on earth, peace that was meant to be, skipping over with God as our Father. Brothers all are we. Leave that part out. And people got upset and so Microsoft responded quickly, watching sales drop and and put the second verse right back in. As we'll talk about in a few minutes, peace without God our Father is not even a possibility. But peace still seems hard to come by. In this world and at this time when we all just want it to dial down. We really want there to be peace. We don't want to see headlines of shootings and bombings and disasters and all that going on. And yet, here it is. And peace continues to be difficult on this planet. From the aggressions in Aleppo, Syria, to the nuisance of your next door neighbor. And I'm not talking personally there. Peace often looks more like an elusive ideal. Boy, wouldn't that be nice if. And even the God of peace himself, as he's called in verse 11, has been in constant conflict with humanity. History is littered with conflicts between man and God, man and rebellion to God. In fact, by the days of Noah, just ten generations in from Adam... Genesis chapter 6 tells us, The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. How many of you parents have said that about your kids? I am not going to keep putting up with this. (laughs) Because he is flesh, God says. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. What does that mean? Well, it was 120 years from that declaration until the flood came. You could also say that after the flood... The human lifespan went from near millennium to down to right at 120. In fact, very few would live past 120. Abraham did. 
and Isaac and Jacob. But from that point forward, 120, man, if you could live 120 years, you were doing pretty good. So God shut it down. Why? Genesis 6.11 says the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. And yet for all of this, peace remained in the heart of God. He said, I will not strive with man forever. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to have this battle continue on and on and on eternally. And we hear him repeating this throughout the scriptures. Stop the strife. Cease striving, Psalm 46, he says, and know that I am God. You want peace? Cease striving. And then he hones in on this people, Israel, to to paint the picture, if you will, of God's longing for all mankind. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 16, through the prophet, he said, I will not contend forever. Nor will I always be angry, for the Spirit would grow faint before me. He's talking about the Spirit of mankind. And the breath of those whom I have made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him. I hid my face and was angry. And he went on turning away in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners. Creating the fruit of lips, which the Hebrew writer would later quote that, Hebrews 13, 15, let us praise him with the fruit of lips. He says, peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. So why isn't there peace? Well, Isaiah 57, verse 20 says, The wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So as long as there's wickedness in the world, there will not be peace, even while God is saying, Peace, peace. I will not contend. I will not strive. This is not my desire. But there is wickedness in the earth. Therefore, peace continues to evade humanity. What do you do? What do you do with such a naturally contentious people as, well, us? How do you deal? It doesn't take a village. It takes a child. Just one. Isaiah 9.6, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And of course, at his birth, the angels proclaimed in Luke 2.14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, Peace among men with whom He is pleased. Let there be peace on earth. I mean, man, I wish there was. I can pray for peace, and I do. Psalm 122, verse 6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So I do that. And I can pray as Jesus taught us. By the way, here's how you pray for peace. If you're wondering how, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there will be peace. That's the key. But I know, you know, until His kingdom come, there's not going to be peace. Either in Jerusalem or anywhere else on the planet. 
until Jesus establishes His rule and His reign and His peaceful, perfect authority. And so we come to the end of this letter with a people where there has been lots of contention. You know, 2 Corinthians, we've called it a letter of comfort. And Paul's had to get on to them a little bit, even in this letter of comfort. There's been some heavy exhortation along the way here. But as he comes down to the end, he returns to this theme of comfort. And he gives five admonitions and one assurance. Five admonitions and a final assurance that we might want to take to heart. That goes to this concept of living in peace until Jesus would come. Now let's walk this out this morning. I want to take this as kind of a farewell to Corinth. Okay. By the way, if you're reading a King James Translation Bible, verse 11 begins in that way. Verse 11 says, Finally, brethren, farewell. Farewell. The reason that it's translated farewell is it can be a greeting, but the word in the Greek is Cairo. And Cairo is be overjoyed. Rejoice. Rejoice. It's only translated farewell one time, by the way, and that's in the King James right here. Every other time, 42 times in the New Testament, this word is translated rejoice. 14 times it's translated be glad. And five times it's just straight up joy. So I think we get the point of what Paul is saying And this is the first of what I would call staccato admonitions. Because he just goes bam, 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 bam. Five of them real quickly. And if we're not taking the time to meditate, we might just read right through it as a final farewell. But there's so much here. And the first thing he says, admonition number one is rejoice. If you want peace, not just peace on earth, but peace in your life. Rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Rejoice. It is really hard to be in conflict while you're rejoicing. Hard to be angry while you're praising. Gladness has a peacening effect. I don't know if that's a word, but if not, it's going to be this morning. It's a, it has a peaceful effect on argumentative types. People can be battling it out in the foyer, walk into the auditorium and begin to worship and suddenly something changes. In fact, I believe rejoicing has an impact on the spirit realm as well as on our own spirits. It changes things among us. It has a way of defeating hostilities. Keep your finger there in 2 Corinthians and go all the way back to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. About midway through the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, page 673 in my Bible. This is one of my favorite old stories about a king named Jehoshaphat, which is already a cool name because that king was fat. PH. Okay. Second Chronicles chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Mayunites, so all together that's Jordan today. That's the region of Jordan just to the east of Israel, they came to make war against Jehoshaphat. And then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram. And behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord and they even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Now, Jehoshaphat was not a perfect king, but I really like this guy. 
Because he went to the Lord. This is not the only time we'll see Jehoshaphat do this. He he has a problem coming upon him. He goes to the Lord. We see at one point where he aligns with the king of Israel and they're going to battle. But before Jehoshaphat will go to battle, he says, isn't there a prophet we can consult? A prophet of the Lord that we can ask to find out what the Lord's will is here? I like that about Jehoshaphat. So he gathers all of Judah. The Ammonites and the Moabites and the flashlights are all down there in in Gedi, gathered together. And Gedi is not far from Jerusalem. In fact, it's at the base of the Jerusalem mountains. And so they are preparing a massive onslaught of the kingdom. And Jehoshaphat gathers the people. And what do they do? They begin to pray. Skip down to verse 14. In the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Yahaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Yael, the son of Mataniah, the Levite of the, of the sons of Asaph. Listen, he says. All Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear nor be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. I love it. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. See, their first response to rescue is worship. Deliverance brings praise. It's it's what you naturally do when you realize you have been saved. And the Levites, verse 19, from the sons of the Kohathites and of the sons of the Korahites, stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. Now watch what Jehoshaphat does. They rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in His prophets and succeed. Okay, that sounds great. Trust God. Believe in Him. And sometimes we'll say that from the pulpit. We'll say that to one another. Trust God. Alright, how do you put hands and feet to that? What does that look like? It's not just a nice sentiment. And Jehoshaphat has a brilliant idea. When he had consulted, verse 21, with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised Him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Okay, now, wait a minute. Before SEAL Team 6 goes in, you're going to send Chris Tomlin? You're going to send Rachel and the worship team before our, our fleet? They're going to go first? Who does that? Who sends the praise worshipers out before the army? I mean, this is this is just not smart military thinking. Not a good strategy unless you're trusting the Lord who already said you've won. Trust me, just go down and see the salvation of the Lord. And so that's what Jehoshaphat does. He sends the rejoicers. They go first. He sends the worshipers before the army. Watch what happens, verse 22. When they began singing and praising the Lord, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. Ambushes? Watch this. 
For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. Do you realize what happened? The Moabites and the Ammonites and those of Mount Seir, that's all Jordan today. So that would also include like the Edomites and all of these three ites. They're up there, they're gathered together to take on the Jews of Jerusalem and they start fighting each other. And they take each other out. And so basically, here come these worshipers to find a bunch of... Well, watch this. Read on. Verse 23, the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up. Uh, They destroyed one another. Verse 24, when Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, they were corpses lying on the ground, and no one had escaped. So you're telling me that you can express faith by simply rejoicing? Of course you can. When Jehoshaphat and his... Thank you so much. At least one person's laughing. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found so much among them, including goods, garments, and valuable things, which they took for themselves more than they could carry, and they were three days taking the spoil because there was so much. Praise prepares peace. Worship... Worship brings, it routes warring hearts. Rejoicing brings rest. And if you would have, just you personally, if you're striving, if you're struggling, if you would have peace right now in your life, it begins with rejoicing. Finally, brethren, Paul says, rejoice. And God will rout the enemy in your life. Send out praise. And He will bring peace. And this story is one of those rare moments when rejoicing preceded reason. They didn't have a reason to rejoice other than the promise of the Lord. This is one of those rare moments where Jehoshaphat, God bless him for his trust and his faith, rejoiced on this side of the Red Sea. You know the Red Sea story. There's massive, wonderful rejoicing. You know, of the children of Israel, once they crossed the Red Sea, after they had seen the deliverance of the Lord, of course they had a massive worship service, and that tends to be our way. But to trust the Lord is to rejoice ahead of time. Going into a surgery with an uncertain outcome, praise the Lord. You know, facing some kind of financial struggle or difficulty at home, praise the Lord before He answers the prayer. Rejoice first, and peace comes. And we see that with Jehoshaphat. It is the best kind of worship. Because it both strengthens the heart and it softens the heart prior to the conflict. It makes conflict a whole lot easier to deal with. What if I don't know if a conflict is coming? I mean, Jehoshaphat, at least he had a heads up that that these people were coming up against him. What if I have no idea what's about to hit? Well, I've got an answer for you there too. Philippians 4.4 Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You see, if you're always rejoicing in the Lord, guess what? You are always preceding problems with praise. Just rejoice all the time. And when the difficulties come, you're already in the place of worship. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Paul says again, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. and everything, give thanks. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So admonition number one is simply rejoice. Second. Admonition number two, Paul says, be made complete. Be made complete. Now, leave room in your notes if you're a note taker for another definition here. Be made complete is good. 
And, and Paul will repeat himself. In fact, he's repeating what he said in verse 9. If you look right back up there, we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are made strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. He uses a one-word phrase here in both sentences. Be made complete, be made complete. Now, in his previous letter to Corinth, he had written the same thing. 1 Corinthians 1.10 I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen to the context, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. What is this word, be made complete? It's katarizo. No, that's not right. It's katarizo. I left the T out. Katarizo. Katarizo means... Kata in the Greek, down upon, and artizo is wholeness. So you put it together, it's come down upon wholeness, or come into this place of wholeness, but for its richest meaning, i got to take you back to the shores of the Galilee, to an afternoon where Jesus was walking along those shores, gathering His companions, calling His disciples. And as He walked those shores, it says in Matthew 4.21, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. You see it? To be made complete also means, is translated, mending nets. Mend your nets. Rejoice, Paul says, and mend your nets. Be made complete. Be sewn together. Be made strong yet again. You see, sometimes sometimes nets get torn while fishing. It's hard work. I mean, think about the nets. They're flung out into the salty sea. They have to strain against the sides of the boat coming back in. They pull up heavy loads of fish. Or they soak in the sea for hours praying for the fish to come. Are you catching what I'm saying? Why, brothers and sisters, would we be surprised at conflicts when we are in the business of fishing for men? Why would we be surprised when occasionally the nets get torn? When we're trying to do something that is beyond us, truly. But we are called to be fishers of men, and it is going to happen, and it is equally vital to the fishing, it is the mending. James and John were on the shore as Jesus came and they were mending the nets. Why? Because if they don't mend the nets, tomorrow when they go out to fish again, the nets are just going to tear more and ultimately they will lose fish. They will not be able to catch that which they are going out to catch. And if our fellowship is not sown strong, if the occasional rips and tears are not mended, we will have trouble receiving lost fish in Jesus' name. And so Paul says, rejoice and be mended. And this goes back to the very first concern he had with Corinth, and that was all the divisions. How in the world were they going to reach out and save the lost when they themselves are filled with backbiting and division? When they couldn't even get along, who wants to be part of that? Who wants to come be part of a church fellowship where there is nothing but contention and torn nets? And in fact, I think you all know this, church conflicts remain one of the primary reasons why unbelievers are uncaught. Why they slide through the net. 
Because there are too many tares there. And Paul says, be mended. Tend to the tares in the net. It's not just about feeling happy when we're together. It's not just about having peace in and amongst ourselves. But the peace that is here and the strength that is here through mended nets allows us to catch other fish because they want to be in that net. They want to be a part of what's going on here. Tend to the tares in the net. Why? That we might be fishers of men in peace. We are called to be different. A different kind of people with the Spirit of the Lord upon us. A people who live in peace. Who walk in peace. And as the world looks in, they say, Wow, all I have is striving and straining and conflict and I want some of that peace. I really want to be part of those who are in that net. By the way, this encouragement and the next are both in the passive form. Be mended. That is, they are something that are done to us by another. When Paul says be mended, he's talking about mend each other. Be made complete together. I need you to mend me and you need me to mend you. And all the while we need the great mender of nets. We need Jesus who goes by another name. And that name is Comforter. You see, the great mender of nets and restorer of relationships is the Spirit of the living God. Admonition number three, be comforted. Be comforted. Rejoice. Mend the nets. Be comforted. And of course, be comforted is that word parakaleo, where we get the paraklesis, the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the helper of John 14, 15, and 16. Parakaleo. Be comforted, he says. That word also can translate be encouraged. Because the Spirit of God is not only the comforter, He is the encourager. And that word means the same thing. Paul now comes full circle to where he began this particular letter to Corinth. Not with contention, which was never his purpose, but with comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, going back to the beginning, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I love that two-verse phrase. That sentence. How how Paul throws out this word comfort again and again and again that you would be comforted and in your comfort that you would be able to comfort others with the comfort with which you have been comforted by God. It all works. It's like His comfort just washes over us and soaks us and gets on everybody who's around us. Because as I'm comforted, you are comforted. Because I'm seeking your comfort. Because I'm in the place of comfort. Be comforted. And again, this is in the passive form because this is something that is done to you. By the Spirit of God, but also by other believers. We are in the comfort business. We are in the business of rejoicing and mending nets and comforting one another, coming together for each other's comfort. We need each other for comfort to happen. You don't just sit out on a rock somewhere and find yourself comforted. Oh, maybe for a few minutes. Maybe getting away from all the contentions and strife of the world, you can sit out on that rock and just breathe a sigh of relief. But to really be comforted, you got to find that comfort in relationships. Can I ask you a question? 
Have you yet grown tired of individual Christianity? Because I have. I love the concept of a personal relationship with Jesus. I've taught it, I preach it. You need to have a relationship. You with Him. But it doesn't end there. And in the church, that has been such a push for so long now. Independent, individual Christianity. I don't need the church. I can sit at home and be just as spiritual as I can in a gathering on a Sunday morning of fellowship. And I sit there and say, you're losing out. That is not how God designed us to be comforted. He designed us for one another. You can't mend the net when you're all by yourself. All the tears remain. And you can't be comforted all by yourself. God puts us together, corporate, body life, fellowship. That's where we find comfort. That's where we find encouragement. And and that's why Hebrews 13.24 says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. As is the habit of some on a snowy Sunday morning, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I grew up listening to that Christian cliche. In fact, I think for several years, our preacher said that every Sunday morning, not forsaking our own assembly together. And I'm like, I'm here, dude. Don't guilt trip me. Not forsaking the assembly. I read a list of Christian cliches the other day. I almost brought it to read to you, but it, it wasn't that good. But one on there, and I was shocked, they listed as a Christian cliche is not forsaking the assembly. Well, I'm sorry, but Scripture is never cliche. And I read that, and I thought, how sad that for some, the idea of not forsaking the assembly is either a cliche, for others, it's a guilt trip. And the reality is, to forsake fellowship is to forsake my own comfort. And to forsake fellowship is to forsake the opportunity for me to go comfort someone else. I've said this to you before, when we walk in the doors of the church, are we walking in to receive, or are we walking in to give? Am I coming to see if there's someone I can minister to? Or am I coming just to be ministered to? And man, they didn't minister to me last week, so I'm not coming back next week. Scripture says, don't forsake the assembly. Why? Because the assembly is vital. Vital to your peace. As is rejoicing. As is being made complete, being mended, being comforted. The I don't need the church mentality is going to end up in one place, my friends, discouragement. Because you can't walk this walk all by yourself. And you can't even follow through on admonition number four, which is be like-minded. Unless you're schizophrenic, you know? Be like-minded by yourself. All three of me are the same. We get along just fine. We're having our own worship service right now. No. Be like-minded. We need each other to, as Romans 12.16 says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Paul writes in Philippians 2 verse 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Be like-minded. He doesn't say be Christian drones. He doesn't say be automatons. It's not about everybody having the same lingo, Christianese. 
It's not about the same fashion sense, office casual. It is not about liking the same Christian music. The recurring theme of Paul, indeed the passion of the Holy Spirit for a unified church, is far greater than, listen, affinity. When he says be like-minded, he's not talking about like the same things, enjoy the same foods, be on the same diets, walk step down the same path. No. To be like-minded is far greater than that. It, it, It literally is translated to be of the same understanding. Be of the same understanding. Now, I want to make something very clear here. This is more solical than it is spiritual. There are other things he's saying right here that are very much spiritual, but right now he's really talking to the soul. He is talking to the reason and to the intellect of a church when he says, be like-minded. And remember this at the close of this letter, Paul has been admonishing the church at Corinth across two letters to have the same understanding. How? By being on the same page biblically, scripturally. Study God's word together. Here's what doctrine is. Understand this together. Maintain. Have the same mind about these things. I mean, think about all the doctrinal issues we have dealt with in these two letters. Let me just throw out a few, just for your memory's sake. Jesus and the cross. Faith, fellowship, unity, sexual immorality, marriage and divorce, idolatry, Christian liberty, Israel, the Lord's Supper, the roles of men and women in the church fellowship, the Holy Spirit, spiritual operations and gifts, love, the resurrection and the rapture of the church, judgment, generosity. You could continue on with a long list of sound biblical doctrine in First and Second Corinthians. Why? Paul is writing these letters to get this church on the same page. That they might have the same understanding together. The Spirit preserved these two letters, along with other letters of Paul, that the church would have like-mindedness. Same understandingness. You see, it does matter what we believe. It does matter what we know to be true. We have never, ever been told by the Spirit of God to be like-minded in terms of tradition. We've got to maintain the same traditions. That's not like-mindedness. That's tradition. We've never been told, be of the same culture. See, that's where on occasion missionaries have gotten it wrong when they've come into a different culture to acculturize them or take that culture and make them like the culture they come from. Mission work exploded when missionaries began to realize that the best kind of mission work is indigenous, that you work within the culture and you bring the truth of God which supersedes the culture. So we're not to be like-minded going around the world making more Americans. That's not mission work. We're not to be like-minded by heredity. Well, that's what I grew up believing. That's what my parents taught. Why do you do the things that you do? Well, because generations of my family have done them. That is the stupidest reason I know to do anything. You better know what you believe and why you believe what you believe right now. How do I know? Doctrine. Sound biblical teaching. As Paul wrote in his first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he said, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree... That there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete. There it is. Mended nets. Strong nets. 
in the same mind and of the same knowledge or literally of the same faculty of judgment. And Paul lays it out. How do you unify the church? What is the number one way to unify the church? Doctrine. And what has the enemy used as one of the strongest ways to divide the church? Doctrine. Interesting. Well, you got your pre-tribbers. You got your mid-tribbers. You got your post-toasties. You got all your different perspectives on all the different things. And I have told you all now for 13 years what I myself think I've discovered in all this and that the answer is very clear if you just take God at His word. We wouldn't have all the divisions that we have. Well, yeah, but Rick, there are a lot of churches and denominations who are saying they're all wrong. No, I'm just saying that the sad reality is that tradition trumps truth. Tradition tends to sideline truth. Why do we have the denominational divisions that we have in the world today and all the different perspectives that we have today? Because churches stop teaching the Word of God. Because people began to hone in on one particular thing and form an entire theology around that rather than having their entire theology be the entire Word of God. The whole counsel of the Word of God. If we would sit in this, I guarantee you divisions would at least settle down substantially. And I know some people come along and they say, yeah, but reading the same Scriptures, can't people interpret things differently? Alright, first of all, understand this. 2 Peter 1.20 says, No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You know what that says? That tells us that the writers of Scripture were not bringing their own interpretation. That the prophets and, and Moses and the apostles, the writers, as they wrote these things down, were not coming up with things on their own. They were speaking as spoke from God. This is God's Word, and God's Word is wholly unifying. It's only man's Word that divides. So as we get into God's Word, we understand that it didn't come from men, but from God. And understanding that, we can lay down traditions and backgrounds and personal mores for and in favor of His Word, and we will find ourselves far more like-minded. We only become divided in mind when we really aren't studying Scripture. And it's interesting because I've had, let's just say warm conversations. I was going to say heated, but that sounds a little strong. I've had warm conversations with brothers and sisters in Christ who completely disagree with me over certain issues. And don't misunderstand, I'm not saying that I'm right about everything. In fact, I have been corrected over and over and over with things I used to believe as we have studied through the Bible. But I've had these conversations and it's always interesting when someone feels like their tradition is failing or their perspective is not holding up against God's Word, they just shut down. Well, that's just what you believe. No, it's what it says. And I do believe that if churches would return to the teaching of the Word, rest in the teaching of God's Word, if we in our own lives would just study and read the Bible as is, we would find ourselves unified in ways that would blow us away. Secondly, understand this. To be like-minded, we have to be Christ-minded. Philippians 2.5 Have this attitude. It's the same word that he uses here when he says be like-minded. Have this attitude, this like-mindedness in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
And then he goes on to explain the humbleness of Christ in becoming a human being and going to the cross. Like-mindedness. Have this attitude among yourselves. We do it by remaining in God's Word and we do it by having the Spirit of Christ. The mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 Who has known the mind of the Lord that, we will, that He will instruct Him. But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We have the doctrine of Scripture as given by God and we have the Spirit of God in us together to unify the body of Christ. So finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. And admonition number five, live in peace. And I love in the order of this that live in peace does not come first. But live in peace follows all the rest. It follows rejoicing. It follows mended nets. It follows comfort. It follows like-mindedness. Live in peace. Now Paul says this many times in his letters. Romans 12.18, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. What does that imply? It implies that some people are still going to be against you. It implies there's still going to be conflict. But as far as you're concerned, as far as I'm concerned, our calling is to be people of peace. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 1, with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Both the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. By the way, that's something that we pray often in our shepherds' meetings. For our fellowship, that God would maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Hebrews 12.14, he writes, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Catch that. If churches lack peace, who's going to be saved? If churches lack sanctification, how will anybody see the Lord? Pursue peace with all, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And James writes in James 3.18, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Live in peace. Barnett in his commentary wrote, believers are caught up in spiritual warfare, both within their own lives and for the hearts and minds of unbelievers. They are not to be at war with one another. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? We're not warring each other. We're fighting against the spiritual realm, against those who are opposed to salvation for the sake of those who don't have salvation. And so no wonder, Jesus said, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peace. It's personal, but it's also for those who don't yet have it, but desperately need it. You see, while while Corinth had its share of class warfare and and doctrinal dissent. The admonition, this admonition to live in peace, isn't just for Corinth. It's to all the church of the first century and of the last 2,000 years and right now. Five admonitions for peace. Rejoice. Be mended. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And I would ask the question, how are we doing? How are we doing in our relationships, in our families, in our fellowship? How's the church doing in the world today? It's a tall order. 
I mean, they're great admonitions, Paul. I appreciate you saying these things, Paul. Thanks a lot, Paul. But we need help with this, don't we? And so, thankfully, Paul doesn't leave it there. He gives us, after five admonitions, he follows it with one great assurance. He says, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Hmm. Paul says, do all these things and you can be assured God will do His thing among you. Well, that sounds conditional. What about unconditional love? Well, let me explain to you that it is absolutely conditional. That if you would have, if we would invite the God of love and peace to be with us, then it's incumbent upon us to rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, and live in peace. Because these things invite the Spirit of the Lord to be at work. And these things are brought about by the Spirit of the Lord. There's a cool dynamic there. God both does this and responds when we do it. He works in us to make it happen, and as it happens, He works in us more to make it happen. And so, He infuses the church with His Spirit, and the church invites the infusion of His Spirit in the way we function. And that's how this thing works. I mean, understand this. Okay, grace is unconditional. You can't do anything to earn it. Salvation comes free of charge from the Lord. He offers it. He gives it. We can't do anything to earn that. But rejoicing, that's your choice. And being mended, that's up to us. Comforting each other, we can or we can't. Being like-minded, living in peace, we have got to choose these things. And as we do, He comes. These things are all available to us, no question, but they have to be received. Question, have you ever known a believer who was not at peace? Oh, of course not. Christians are always at peace. Never in conflict, never have contradictory views. Ever known a contentious, (laughs) curmudgeonly churchgoer? I have. I think I've been one (laughs) from time to time. And I'm not even saying that Christians in conflict are not saved people. I believe they are. They're just not having a very good time along the way to salvation. And that really is a choice of ours. There are grumpy Christians who are going to find themselves in heaven and they're not going to know how to rejoice. Because they've spent a lifetime learning how to be grumpy. And this horrible world that we live in and all those sick, filthy sinners around us and the people in my church don't get me. Hallelujah. (laughs) Completely missing the point and the joy and the wonder of walking together in Christ Jesus that we get to rejoice. All of these things we've read over and over. I'm going to read it one more time because it's so good. Rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. Who doesn't want that? And the God of love and peace will be with you. Why wouldn't we respond to that? Now listen, final thing here. Because this is how it all works. God of peace. That name, God of peace, occurs frequently with Paul. He likes that one. Romans 15.33, Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Romans 16.20, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I like that one. Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. 
as in all the churches of the saints. Philippians 4.9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul writes, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And Hebrews 13.20, the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. God of peace, God of peace, God of peace. Do you get it? Cease striving, he says, and know that I am God. Why? Because he is the God of peace. However, verse 11 is the only place in the entire scriptures where he's called the God of love. Surprised? It's the only place he's called the God of love. Now, at least 11 times in the New Testament, the phrase love of God is used. And John tells us, in 1 John 4, 8 and 4, 16, he tells us God is love. And the Bible and history itself manifests the love of God. Absolutely, unequivocally, we know that, that He is love incarnate. But this is the only time we see the title, the God of love. Just one time. Why is that? And I believe it's because Paul is referring here to the God who oversees the love of His people. That He is the God of the love that is here. That He is love, of course He is. But He's also the God of love. He's the God who is about love. He's the God who admonishes love. He's the God who encourages love. That's what He does. He's the God of peace. And the God of love. And in this, my friends, the Prince of Peace is coming. But for now, today, in this very moment, until the angels sing, until the heavens are opened, until we're caught up, if you would have peace, it will only be known in the love of God under the supervision of the God of love and peace. Amen? Father, we come to You as the God of love. The God who would restore tearing and mend nets and comfort and encourage and heal. The God who shows us what love is and how to love each other even when we are in conflict. And You are Lord as Your Word proclaims again and again the God of peace. And Father, I I pray against all the striving and all the stress and all the straining that amazingly comes with this holiday season. I pray against it, Father, in this world, and I pray for the peace that only comes with Your presence. The peace, Lord, that You offer and the love that You superintend. Would You oversee, Father, love in this church? And would You please, Father, oversee peace and bring both to us even as we pursue and seek and desire love and peace in this place. In Jesus' name, Amen.